If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. All right. I heard like instruments. I thought I heard a ting at the same time, but I think that was a glass. I think that was a glass. Yeah. Um, Are we on? We are on. Have we been on? You've got to stop doing that to me. No, just like 10 seconds. Oh, okay. Okay. Hi, Patrice. Hi, Marlea. Look, I did it this time. You did. We are starting a tell. This is not television. (laughs) In our own mind, it is. In my mind. (laughs) Um, Let's see. What do we want to discuss before we get down to... like a lot of we've, kind of post-mortem things we've that got I know some that interesting w- things that we talked about because we recently went on a trip to atlanta oh yeah so welcome to anybody from that trip that might perhaps Hopefully, be listening today maybe maybe not exactly so do you remember i'm so bad with names i'm sorry people i'm so bad um who who are the names of the people at our table jackie um, Marshanna. Marshanna. I love that. Ben. Name. Ben. Um, and then just us two, right? And then us two and a uh, chick with the embroidery pants that came late. Right. Whose name cool I never hair, got. Yes. Tattoos. Alligator girl. Al- yes, absolutely. She and then Shannon. Right, exactly. And then Shannon um, Downey. Shannon Downey. Who's the badass cross stitch. Who is Lady. literally badass. Absolutely. Amazing. So we went to this workshop at Moda, which is the Museum of Design in Atlanta. Which no one seems to know is there, even the people that were there. They were like, we go to the high all the time and we never noticed that this little place was across the street. So. Right. And the only reason I know that it's there is because I'm a graphic designer and it's kind of like the only graphic design, design related museum that I am aware of that's in the South. So there may be more. I'm just not aware of it. And it's very convenient. And it's like right across from the high. Mm-hmm. And um, they bring in some like really big names. They had Debbie Millman and oh, all Debbie kinds Millman. of um, uh, Gail Anderson. I think they're bringing her back. Um, I think that's what they just, you know, wonderful ladies that they're bringing in. And we went there for a Her Story workshop, which is basically... Um, Shannon put together, she does embroidery and cross stitch, and she put together kind of this, it's termed craftivism, and it's you telling your story if, you know, as a female or somebody that identifies as a female, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it can be anything, it can be like sending out positivity, it could be sending out, you know, personal related poems or sayings or something that's personal to you, and she's collecting these and and they're embroidered so like basically for the workshop is like they give you a 12 by 12 square right and you embroider or yeah it's embroidery yeah right. you um stitch your story whatry that may be like you were saying poetry and and or you know visuals visuals right. you know 
and um and then you submit it back to her right and then she's collecting them i think so far she's shooting for a million Mm -hmm. but so far she's only got about a thousand which is still a lot and if you're thinking about like all of that and she's going to stitch them together and put them on exhibit and there's going to be like a digital exhibit and there's also probably going to travel the world but she's got like you know her stories from all over the world and it was so lucky that for whatever reason I decided to check the Moda's mm-hmm. like calendar oh, yeah. and see her because I followed her on Instagram a couple of years ago because I love I was like very much into like the snarky kind of cross stitch oh, yeah. embroidery kind of sayings they that are, are hilarious. very popular right now. And um I saw her and I loved what she was doing and so I started following her. And then I saw her your name at the Moda calendar and I was like, oh my God, she's gonna be right here. We're gonna have to go. And we did. And we did. And, and it was I, amazing. Like, and I didn't do my research in advance. I was just like, Patrice wants to go to this thing and it says badass, so I'm going to go. And um, <laughs> Well, you know, that's enough for me for anything. I know, right? <laughs> and, I, and I knew about her. And by the way, if you want to know more about what she's doing, um, you can start by following her on Instagram at Badass Cross Stitch. Um, that's Shannon's Instagram. And uh, I think the her story is is it just badassherstory.com maybe? I'll find that out and we'll post a link for you because right. if anyone would like to participate in this too, she's looking for like people to kind of be ambassadors and start small groups of their own right. she's communities. The, right, and that's what she's doing. She's wanting to build communities um, and start talks and relationships within the communities. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more of a community project um, gathering than actually the product, the end product is, I think it's just kind of happenstance or just mm-hmm. kind of the thing, um, the process. So, yeah. So that was amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a great experience and we had a blast and thanks we to did. everybody that we met there and we hope that, uh, we see you again or something. Yeah. Reach out to us. Keep in touch. Um, so coming back from that, we are driving back <laughs> and it's shitty roads, man. Construction. They're doing some weird shit with the road. I and... thought Patrice was going to kill me because like the Garmin <laughs> was on and like I couldn't get the volume to go up. So I'm sitting there and I've never used one before and my fingers are like notoriously non-conductive. So like touch screens are not my friends. And so I was sitting there trying to like fix the fix the volume and fix the volume. We're like right in the middle of Atlanta, like trying oh, to do downtown, the surface roads. Right. And she's like, just fucking leave. It, just leave it for a second. <laughs> well, the thing with me is like I always kind of turn my GPS on after I get moving in the car, and you can't do that in Atlanta. It's like you need to like as soon as you get out of the parking lot, you need that thing oh, yeah. on telling you where to go. And so I was not really prepared mentally for it. And you have to know which lane of mm-hmm. the ten lanes that you need to be over on the far right or the far left. Mm-hmm. And so. No, I was not upset. I was upset with the traffic. It was funny though. It was. Oh my god! It was because we had to we had to go with like the GPS instead of uh, Waze because of Darth Vader was like the voice on Waze. <laughs> so like every time it's like take a left turn. <laughs> Welcome to the dog side, <laughs> and we're like we're there, dude. We're there. Okay, just get us home. <laughs> it was cute for like five seconds. That's all right. Um, and then once we kind of got out of um, Atlanta and all the construction then i talked to marlea into listening to coast to coast 
Which we talked about last week. Which we talked about last week. So she got to experience that. The madness of Coast to Coast. The madness of Coast to Coast. And I am really kind of happy because they have shitty audio. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes me feel really good. We didn't have to constantly turn it up and down and we're like, oh. I I know. The host still did really great. But the call-ins, man, they were totally like peaking and crackling Mm -hmm. and just like hurting the ear and stuff. And they were talking about you crazy know, shit. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> into like, the what future, and I saw a pterodactyl when I was twelve years old. Here's how I can prove it to you. What are we listening to? Uh, it was crazy. It was kind of awesome, though. It really yes. is like you can't. You kind of can't turn it off once you start. Right. And you but have they, to they, be driving can, in the middle of the night I can totally to see like that. really appreciate it. It needs to be in the dark on a drive. But uh, yeah, it's uh, and that was. Uh, if if you look up like best of coast to coast, it's the podcast is there, but I couldn't find like, you know, I couldn't find a recording of mm-hmm. the actual AM, you know, radio show that they still do. Um, right. But uh, the best of, you can get the best of as a podcast if you want to just listen to it at your leisure. At your leisure. Exactly. <clears throat> so that was fun. Um, what other? Oh, we do want to talk about. um Language. How we talk about things. Yes, language. I want to make a couple quick like statements about language, and one of these is a mea culpa, too, definitely. Um, I got a message last week between when we recorded and when we released last week's right. um, from my dear friend Christina, who um, is just a spectacular person, and um, she, we've known her for a really long time. She's been listening to the podcast since we first started. She enjoys it. Um, and you know, she sent me this, which, and, and it's important to note, like, I really, really appreciated that she sent me this because this isn't the type of thing that I would like people to just pretend like we're not doing. Right. So, um, cause Christina, we do try to make a conscious effort, but we don't, we don't know all the things. Yes. And that is, yeah. And so to explain, Christina has, um, is raising and has raised several children of color, um, or is raising and has helped raise. And um, she is very, very aware of language and how language affects people. Patrice and I are, you know, white women. Um, You know, we're coming from position of privilege can't really be argued at all right and um so while we have tried every time we've discussed complex issues of race on this podcast it is coming from folklore right it is coming from a southern perspective and we all know that the people that own the narrative are the people in power right so a lot of the narratives that we're sharing are narratives that come from a perspective of white landowners of old south men particularly right um who owned other people right and so even when we're discussing things that you know like we when we talked about um you know you talked about uh uh lalori um and the way that um she treated right and we said her slaves right and you know christina's pointing out you know it's it's important to put humanity at the forefront when you talk about things like that from the past, right. especially because we share, you know, a, a really strong desire to kind of move forward from yes. all of that and kind of point out like the huge like issues that come with some of these stories, right. especially from a Southern perspective sometimes. And um, so one of the things Christina pointed out was, you know, it might make sense to make a little bit more of an intentional effort to say things like enslaved people instead of slaves, because the word slaves assumes 
the the perspective of the slave owner right and enslaved people assumes humanity you know it's amazing what difference like just a couple little tweaks in language can make to the actual like story you're really telling right and and how you feel about the the people because a lot i mean a lot of the people in these stories are people that have been um shit i just had the word in my brain um exploited Mm -hmm. you know so we're talking about freak shows too i Mm -hmm. mean we we definitely want to keep you know we understand the fascination with it and that's why we're talking about it but we also want to you know be make everybody aware that we're talking it at a point from humanities you know from a loving humanities and how this happened and how you know horrible the exploitation is and how things were um and we don't want to like not discuss it but we do want to find words that make that bring out the humanity and all the people that we're talking about who suffered um injustice absolutely and and my special mea culpa too is that my story last week um the way that the in the the story of little violette the the zombie child the way that her nurse was described in the the book that I had pulled this story from was with the word mulatto, her mulatto nurse. And, um, you know, that word in particular right. is super, super ugly. So I think when, when I was reading it originally, I, I had a kind of tongue in cheek, but then I caught myself repeating that word later on in the show, which is a it's a pretty shitty word so that's 100 percent a mea culpa on mine that leaves my vocabulary like immediately actually it never really was in my vocabulary but um that uh that that was pretty yeah when you're reading these stories i mean I'm, i'm doing some pretty um heavy editing on the actual telling of the story and the words used to tell the story yeah. and then trying to translate it so it is you know from a human perspective yeah. and not from, like you said, the perspective of the original teller, yeah. which was set at a different time and a different mindset. So all that to say, all that to say, we are, uh, we are aware of the language that we're using. We're going to continue to pay attention and we're going to pay closer attention and a thank you to Christina for pointing yes, that out. Yes, absolutely. And also that, you know, sometimes we are ignorant and we do want to be like, we do want to learn. Yeah. So don't feel shame calling us out. Right. Seriously. Yes. (laughs) Because we will correct it. Yes. (laughs) Now, if you're going to be an ass, just read your shit online or, you know, (laughs) look what this guy said. But, you know, generally, you know, y'all smart people, you probably right. So absolutely. So cheers. Cheers. Courtney is here again today. Yes. She is our bartender again today. We missed Yay. her. We had no bartender oh, last week. Oh, no. We, we, like, really... We were sitting here going, shit, we got to make these drinks ourselves. We really were. I was, like, at school after, like, we one so time. We were like, why do I have to do this? Where's my drink? <laughs> so what are we... Uh, oh. Do you want to... You can you do you want to stand in front of the microphone and say what this is? You don't, do you? You don't have to. It's kind of a oh, specialty. It's a whiskey sweet tea. Yeah, that, that was a pun, right? Specialty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Made with Jack Daniels and uh, limoncello, and to sweeten it up for Patrice, I yeah. put uh, passion fruit juice, and then I muddled some lime in all of them. Yeah, and mint and mint. And mint. The mm. mint was really good. Yes, good touch. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm halfway through that. Yes. 
Yes. Okay. I was trying to drink really fast while we were talking there just to wet my whistle because I'm going first. Woo! <laughs> that means I'm not. <laughs> and I, man, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I'm still, y'all, this week I've been sick, so I've been really behind. Mm. Um, we have a listener lore that we haven't even put out yet. And I want to put it out before we put this out. And then we've got, like, more stories mm-hmm. for, like, a second listener lore. And But so, we still need more. We've got one that's, like, in the bucket, but we need right, others. We so re- write your stories down to yes. us, Chad. And, um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Or just, you know, voicemail it, you know, something, mm-hmm. something. Uh, so I was literally yesterday sitting down thinking, okay, I've got to pick a story and I kind of reflect on where I've been and what's going on. And then a lot of times I leave it to happenstance mm-hmm. to kind of like my story and my story just landed in my lap. Like I wasn't even looking. Fun. And, fine. And it's it's kind of related to the listener lore, which I'm not going to tell you what it is because, or maybe you should already listen to it by now. So that's right. Wait, it's really hard to tell because right now we're right. in the future. Right. We are in the future. So it's like, it's very uncertain <laughs> to is, us. It is very uncertain. And we don't mean daylight savings, which, no. you know, also made this week yeah, sort of hellish. Yeah, a shitty week, it, right? Yeah. I mean, just generally all around. Just generally all around. Absolutely. So th- this kind of relates to one of the listener lures, but it, it again, it just fell into my lap because I follow these people on Facebook. Once we started the strange South, I started following people from the South that are like really good storytellers, like the bitter Southerner, mm-hmm. bitter Southerner, um, dot com. And just looking around and I'd get like, trying to find these people's names oh and so you know it would have suggestions when i would look up storytellers folklore and stuff like that and i don't know how this fell into my lap um these people but it's called Backroads and burgers oh okay and it's actually all i can think of is like guy fieri i feel yeah, like it should be know, like diners exactly. drive throughs and dives exactly. or whatever. and they do have they are like that but it's this um best-selling author and her um, award-winning photojournalist person, uh, Brandy and Mark. They're backroads and burgers. So they're basically like two people like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and just normal folk. Just normal folk. <laughs> and they went, um, they live uh, probably by the way that they're posting. I'm thinking they live around the uh, Columbia, Mississippi area, oh. which is South Mississippi. So again, Mississippi-based. And I started seeing their stories and I followed them and they do not disappoint because they travel around back roads in Mississippi and they talk about the various places to eat. And because, you know, one of their specialties is photojournalism. They have these fantastic photos. They have like wonderful write-ups. It seems very professional. And so I follow them and I like read them every day. And the story just popped into my lap. I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to do this. I picture then. it looking like a small bunny, like just pop, pop. It did. Suddenly just... there's this adorable story. Exactly. So this is about the Pascagoula abduction of 1973. How many times did you practice saying Pascagoula? Oh, see, I'm from Mississippi. So, so it's just in you. That's in me. Yes. <laughs> that's like Sugarlock. 
Oh, okay. And um, just a lot of the other like names down there. It's just something I learned growing up. So mm-hmm. I can't pronounce shit. Anything else? I was like, you but, can too. You just did. Shit, well, shit, shit, yes, shit. Exactly. But um, I can Pascagoula. Um, uh, all those other ones. Yeah. Grew up learning. So this is the Pascagoula abduction of 1973, which I've never heard about. <laughs> But, obviously, it's a thing. So, in October of um, 73, two co-workers were um, down off the pier of the west bank of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi, which is like Pascagoula River flows into the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. So, it's like kind of right there on the edge. Okay. And the two co-workers were 42-year-old Charles Hickson and 19-year-old Calvin Parker. They didn't live there. I think they lived somewhere else, but they came down there during, I think, a weekend to fish. And um, they were fishing off this pier of this abandoned shipyard. And again, I don't know how to pronounce this. This is one of the things <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce. It's um, Shepeter Shipyard. Um, and it was abandoned, and there was a pier there. And so they just like went down there. It was about sunset, about six o'clock, sun going down. It was getting dark. And, um, it was like a clear night, the moon was out, and as they were fishing, the young guy, Parker, said he saw blue lights reflecting off the water and, and thought that, you know, didn't know what it was. And he heard like this whizzing, whirling, kind of buzzing sound, and the lights started flashing, and he saw this oval shape about like 40 feet across and about eight to 10 feet high. It was kind of like football shaped and it started coming towards them. And Parker and Hickson claimed that they were conscious, but they, they were paralyzed as it approached them. It paralyzed them. And as the ship came closer and it seemed to have kind of like landed or hovered or whatever, three creatures got out. They were legless and they floated from the craft. Okay. And then this one, is different. It is right. And so um, one had no neck, but has like gray with wrinkly skin, and the other had a neck and appeared to be more fem- feminine. Oh, so one was just super overweight, or yeah. So like, yeah, <laughs> just like, like a gray blob flirting. <laughs> blob, <right? laughs> no. Okay. So, um, he said that these shapes, though, had hands and arms, but they were like uh, mitten or crab-like. And Mm. they took both him, Parker, and Hickson aboard and subjected them to examinations and then released them. And as soon as they, like, were released or came to on the pier, they immediately went to the Jackson County, Mississippi sheriff's office so they reported it like this weird shit just happened to them while they were fishing and then they're freaked out and they immediately go to the sheriff's office to report it okay so after they report it like within days pascagoula became like the center of this international news story like it blew up like news crews were coming in people who are interested in ufos started like massing to pascagoula to talk to um Mm. these two guys who were supposedly abducted courtney is nodding right here is this because you're (laughs) from fife yeah yeah (laughs) okay yeah okay 
Um, hold on. Taking a drink. (laughs) No blobs floating floating in Fife. Just, it's, oh my god, it's so weird. (laughs) 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 Okay. So, they reported it. So, investigators, so ufologists... James Harder of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization came down along with uh, J. Ellen Hynek to interview the two men. So these two UFO people came in and... Where do they come from? I'm just like, is this like, is this an independent organization? Is this like a government sponsored mm, organization? I doubt if it's government sponsored, but... Um, the things that we don't know. Yes, things we do not know and that I did not research because again, found the story yesterday. <laughs> I don't think that you <laughs> can find that. Pulled it together out of my research. ass this morning. I feel like if you tried are. to look that up on the internet now, there would be no ev- like no evidence that this organization Are you kidding? Existed. There's going to be so much shit on that organization. <laughs> Have you ever looked up any kind of UFO thing on the on the web? <laughs> okay, so getting back. So, uh, James Harder like attempted to hypnotize as you do. That is a legitimate scientific way Absolutely. of getting information. Uh, Hickson and Parker. And he said that they experienced, he claimed that they did experience an extraterrestrial phenomenon. Because that's like his bag <clears throat> of, of whatever. And then the other guy, Haynick, um, who was investigating, he was a little more down to earth. He believed that they had a very real frightening something happened to him mm-hmm. experience. But he never did say, like, it was a UFO abduction or anything like that. You know, I mean, the way that you describe it, though, it's almost like, like, what else could that really be? I mean, a lot right. of the things are like, there are lights out in the sky. And there's, you know, there are, they, they, maybe this is some kind of, like, hidden, like, government plane thing. Right. Research. And there's, but this one is Mississippi like, has tons of Air Force bases around. So, like, that part so would it, be. It could be, you know, this is something that could be, you know, again, conspiracy theorist, you know. But like Talk but about football-shaped, hovery, like blue light thing with no neck, dinosaur, weird. It's not a dinosaur. Not, it's not an dinosaur. Alien. <laughs> aliens, 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 aliens. Mm-hmm. Too much coast to coast. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's their findings. And so you have the people who believe in UFOs and then you have the skeptics. So um, aviation journalists and UFO skeptic. Phil Class found discrepancies in Hickson's story. Because what happened right afterwards, Hickson, the older guy, he was 42, he like went all out. He was like, yeah, this is what happened to me. And of course, all the talk shows wanted to like talk to him mm-hmm. and hear his story. He's and like, as no a has ever loved me this southerner, much. the hyperbole unfolded. <laughs> and so the story of I caught a fish this big got <laughs> embellished and elaborated. And it kind of became his thing, <laughs> like, right? This and alien so, took me in a time machine and we had a lifelong affair. And yeah, then and so he did. He did. He claimed that afterwards, like after after 1973 several um he, he was abducted several more times mm. after that so it, it became a stick right his stick um but parker who was the young guy kind of distanced himself at that time he's like i'm not doing this um i'm young i still have like i've, I've got to live in this world yeah and so he kind of distanced himself um so this class guy found, you know, obviously discrepancies. Hickson took a polygraph exam. Uh, Klaus, like, questioned the guy that was actually given it, you know, saying that he was not um, tr- 
trained to do it and mm-hmm. that he was going to pull his guy in because we know polygraphs also are very scientific. Fallible, but... Right. <laughs> so anyway, and then another skeptical investigator, Joe Nichols, came in and said that, you know, Hickson's behavior was questionable and that he altered and embellished the story when he later appe- appeared on television. Hello? <laughs> Have you ever met a Southerner? All Southerners are questionable. <laughs> You know, <laughs> especially if they got a good story, right? And this is a damn good story, Getting, you know, probably international play. <laughs> so, um, you know, Nicholson speculated that Hickson may have fantasized the encounter with the aliens and had like a waking dream state. And Parker's uh, uh, cooperation was basically uh, just because he was young and you know in influenced influenceable suggestible are they related no they're not they so work together they work together they work together okay. and they were going fishing one afternoon like, so it's questionable a little bit like yeah what are y'all up to? Um, yeah I know, yes i had that thought as well mm. because my mind goes there mm. so all <laughs> of this happens in 1973 and so it's like of the past, good old story to tell. It's 47 years old, mm-hmm. 46 years old. Um, so why would anybody bring it up now? Mm-hmm. So this is what I saw when I was looking at um, Backroads and Burgers. Um, this was actually a story that was published for two days ago on Thursday. Oh, yeah. Ooh, listen to how timely we are. No. I'm impressed you're bringing us into the future. Yes. So there's a story that was published in the Clarion Ledger, Mississippi Clarion Ledger, which is the Jackson, Mississippi newspaper. And Jackson, Mississippi is the capital of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was by Brian Bloom. So there is, cor- I can't even say it, corroborating uh, stories to go along with what happened in 1973. Mm-hmm. So this couple, Marie and Jerry Blair, um, same day, same location, across the river, were parked at Graham Seafood um, because Jerry worked on a fishing boat. And so they were going to meet uh, the captain and his boat there to go out to go fishing for the seafood for... Graham's seafood place. That's where he worked, right? Okay. So he is sitting there, and uh, Maria, his wife, was, you know, there to drop him off with his clothes. And they were sitting there, and the captain was late. So they're just sitting in this empty parking lot across the river from Parker and um, Hickson, although they didn't know that at the time. But they did see some people fishing across the way. Mm-hmm. And it was getting dark, and... Maria saw something strange. So she's looking over towards the people fishing and she sees a blue light no way. that comes down out of the sky along where they were fishing and it goes up the Pascagoula River and it starts to go kind of back and forth and then it goes and hovers over to where the guys were fishing. At first she thought it may have been an airplane, mm-hmm. but then she's like, airplanes don't move like that. Well, Jerry, her husband, I think was a little bit preoccupied or either just really not paying attention Mm -hmm. um, because he was like probably 
little upset because the captain was late picking him up and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So she was sitting there watching it. He saw it. He thought it may have been a helicopter, but it had like blue. It was blue and it had like really bright lights and it was hovering and it hovered over there to where the two guys were for about 20, 25 minutes. And then it went away. Oh, and they didn't, I don't think they really talked about it. No, they weren't like, Oh, do you see that? What's that kind of thing? Yeah. They were just like, you know, I don't know. They just, you know, they were curious, but there weren't like, you know, instant like, Oh, this is a UFO. Kind yeah. Of thing. Like they apparently didn't see the necklace alien. Right. The- However, Jerry went down to the end of the dock to put his suitcase and, um, or they were both carrying clothes down there. And, Something in the water caught Maria's eye. So she went over there to the side of the pier and looked down. And she said she saw something that looked like a person in a scuba outfit or something. She said she couldn't really quite tell what it was. But it was human-like. And it was under the water. And it came up to the water. And when she looked down, it went down into the water. And she said she stood there and looked, waiting for the person to come back up. Mm -hmm. And she said it never did. And so she told her husband about this. And he's like, oh, it's probably just a dolphin. She's like, that was not a dolphin. She's Mm -hmm. like, I know what dolphins look like. That was not a dolphin. That was a person. And, of course, he probably, like, poo-pooed her or whatever. And, you know, ship came and they loaded and they never talked about it again. Huh. So that happened. And, but, you know... She's been holding this for like 45 years. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the story about the guys being abducted, the fishermen being abducted came, you know, about and they didn't tell anybody, of course, because 1970s, you you know, crazy talk. You Mm -hmm. get, you know, put in the loony bin or whatever, or you get, you know, chastised by your community um, as like that person. Mm -hmm. So they didn't really talk about it. But they just now came forward with that story that happened at the same time. Huh. And, and, and I think the reason they came forward is because Parker has recently come forward um, with, uh, he wrote a book. So Is that the younger one? The, the younger one. So in 2011, um, Hickson, the 42-year-old man at the time, um, he died of a heart attack in 2011. He was like 80 years old. And after he died, um, Parker decided to, let me find the dates. Give me two seconds. Parker decided that he was going to tell his story uh, very recently. So I don't know if it was like 2009 or what, but he decided to write a book, um, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story by Calvin Parkinson. And this is on Amazon. So when he did this, the Blairs decided to come forward with their story. Mm-hmm. And not only did they come forward with their story, but um, another person, Judy Brannon, who lived in Pascagoula. Hold on. <coughs> I, 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 I gotta get some drink. <laughs> it is Thank whiskey. You. And it's like a, it's like a non-warm toddy. It's medicinal, yes. right? So, that same night, Judy Brannon was sitting in her car a few miles away at a traffic signal with her roommate and their dates. So they were double dating. <coughs> and they were sitting at a light. And then all of a sudden, they saw something, a light in the distance. And they thought maybe it was just an airplane, bright mm-hmm. light. 
Of course, it got closer and closer and it got brighter and brighter and it didn't make a noise. That's what I was going to say. When they said it was a helicopter, I was like, but you know, you hear those. Like, yeah, it's like, you <laughs> definitely hear helicopters. Right. Um, and Maria Blair said that, you know, it was very silent. She didn't hear anything. She, she heard a light buzzing. But Just not, like they said. Right. But not like a helicopters. It sounds like a drone. This is the beginning of drones technology. And so they... They thought it was an airplane, didn't make a noise, had bright lights. It was disc shape. It flew over the car and hovered. Their radio went out. Um, as it flew over the car, it then came back and shot straight up into the air at a very fast rate of speed. And of course, all it like scared the shit out of all of them. <laughs> and they decided not to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And... Again, teens, younger people. Yeah. They're not going to go out there saying it because, like, it's their reputation. You know, the coolness factor goes way down. You start mm. talking UFOs, right? Um, but they're all older now, and so they don't give a shit anymore. So everybody's, <laughs> like, talking about what they they have um, seen. So the Parker had came out with this book, and then uh, Maria and Jerry Blair came out, and Judy Brandon have come out kind of collaborating or corroborating. Corroborating. Um, this incident and they said they've talked to other people with similar stories who don't want to come forward um, huh. talking about this one night in 1973 so that was the story that got me interested however while I was researching this and because I've always heard of several Mississippi UFO stories because I lived in Columbus Mississippi mm-hmm. um, grew up in Columbus Mississippi and we have an Air Force base and of course it always seems like around Air Force Base, you hear people talking about UFOs. Yeah, and stuff. which kind of makes you like, okay, well, yeah, they're testing sense. technology. They're doing, you Absolutely. know. And yeah. Totally God knows be, what. Right. Totally could be true. So this article came out uh, last year, last October. And um, it was by, it's by Billy Watkins. And again, from the Mississippi Clarion Ledger, which is the main paper in Mississippi or, or the... Uh, capital paper, Mississippi. It says Mississippi is the 13th most likely state to see a UFO. Really? Says He says 40,000 Americans have taken out alien abduction insurance. From who? What the fuck does that look like? <laughs> oh, yeah, and wow. from who? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Mississippians have reported <laughs> seeing over... Um, actually close to 6,000 UFO sightings between 1940 and 2017, making it one of the top states where somebody might see a UFO based on population. Oh, weird. And this is the interesting part, or just kind of weird, interesting, right? As we are, the strange side. <laughs> strange. So, Casino.org lists the odds of somebody <laughs> in Mississippi seeing a UFO at 522 to 1. Oh, that's not that bad. Okay. <laughs> the top 10 states are Wyoming and Vermont, which is a 205 to 1 odds of seeing a UFO. Okay. Montana is a 252 to 1. Uh, North Dakota is 294 to 1. Alaska is 313 to 1. Hawaii is 318 to 1. New Mexico oh, is 332 to 1. 
Rhode Island is four hundred or is three hundred and forty two to one, and New <sighs> Hampshire is three hundred and sixty nine to one, and then finally Maine is three hundred and seventy to one. So those are your top ten states to that you're likely to see. And I'm really surprised Alabama is not in that. I am too. But well, they're and, not. And I was sitting here I'm sitting here going through these like stats in my head thinking, okay, we've got like like large expanses of places with a low population. And then you say like Rhode Island. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? That messes up my entire theory. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, my theory like, was like Air Force bases. So I, I think, was like, you yeah. know. But the thing that kind of gets rid of my theory is that Florida is the least likely state to see a UFO. Oh, no, that's shocking. With 3,485 to one chance. The... You know what? There are enough strange shit in Florida. I mean, like in all the other places, they'd see some weird thing and they'd be like, oh, this is extraterrestrial in Florida. They're like, that's just Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Bob or George, you know, whichever one. Right. Um, the guy that wrote this, Billy Watkins, um, he, he put out all this information uh, only to kind of relay his story. Mm-hmm. So he said that when he was a, he was, He's obviously a newspaper writer, but he was covering a high school basketball game in uh, Louisville, and he was driving back to Meridian. These are all Mississippi mm-hmm. places, right? And he was a sports writer for the Meridian Star at the time, and he was traveling down this two-lane country road, and again, he sees a bright light ahead, mm-hmm. and he's thinking, plane, something, mm-hmm. you know, and it kept getting closer and closer, and it goes behind this bunch of trees that's like right around the corner from where he is driving. He says that when it lands, everything um, around it turns green. He's like, everything is just like totally green. He's like, and he's like really starting to freak out now because he knows that when he comes around this corner, that it's going to put him in sight of whatever it was that just landed behind the trees. Oh, wow. So he says he turned, he comes around the corner. As soon as he comes around the corner, he says the bright light suddenly shoots up and goes straight back up into the air and everything returns to the normal color. So he said that kind of like did away with like his logical brain trying to think. Is this an airplane? That, that like, something yeah. or a meteorite or some gas ball or something like that coming down. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it like went back up really yeah. fast in into space. And so he was kind of relaying that as his story of being one of the 100 and... One to the 200. <laughs> what is it? I lost my statistics. For, for, Mississippi? for Mississippi. 520 or something, wasn't it? Right. To one? Yes. 522 to one. Oh, listen, I'll pay yeah, attention. So there you go. Holy shit. I know. See, that's been one of those things I've always been kind of dodgy about because I'm like, I, like there are too many stories like this that there's not something people are seeing, but I've watched too much X Files to think it ain't the government, you know. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> small grain of truth and everything, right? <laughs> yes. So that is my story. Thank you I so much, Backroads and Burgers. I want to totally give y'all a shout out. If you're on Facebook, they are at Backroads and Burgers. Follow them. They got great stories great pictures it's great food i will follow them now absolutely all right we need to pause because i have to pee and then i'll tell you my story yay yes, that was fun <laughs>
Ready, ready. Do you need me to scoot this out? Mm, you're good. You're good. No. Okay. I want you yours as comfortable and close to you as possible. As comfortable and close to me as possible. Hold on for a second. Mm hmm All right. Mmm. Mm, it's good. I like it. Oh yeah, strong. Do you need some country time? No, I can deal with it. You sure? I, I'm kind of buzzing now, so it's not like. I can put some simple syrup in it. I'm good. Okay. It doesn't need to be sweeter. Okay. It's just that. The whiskey strong. It's the whiskey strong. Yeah, it's that bourbon flavor. I should have brought. I need to bring my blood pressure cuff next time I come over here and see what the drinking does to my numbers. Yeah, I know, but I'm feeling it, man. Oh, yeah. Well, the alcohol has sugar. Yeah. <laughs> they keep on telling me it's not sugar-related. Yeah. I'm like, you know, fuck if it's not. Alcohol, so it was like, it's got to be sugar-related. Anyway, are we on? Am I, like, just spouting all my personal deets? That's okay, because I'll just start whenever. You just start whenever. Check my blood pressure. If you ever hear, like, That's the noise. That's me. All right, so I'm ready. Do it. I'm excited because I have no idea. Don't ever. Oh, don't tell me you're excited because then I'm like, oh, it's gonna suck. No, one thing that's funny though, because um, you send my Chad yeah. your stuff, and he's like, yeah, he's like, Marlea sends me these places and people. He's like, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> he's like, I can't tell if it's like in the same area or if it's the same people that you're doing because I've never heard of this. So. Well, I just figured like if I sent him the main, like if I sent him the main character or something like that, then like surely when you describe yours to him, he right. would pick up on the <laughs> right. So no, he, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty I'll just sure send him the whole script next you're time. Not, you don't, you don't have to. I'm just kidding. He's fine. I can't do that anyways because yeah. I don't have one. He's just like. He's like, I don't know what y'all are talking about in the basement, but. You know. <laughs> and you'll never know. Yeah, he does. I mean, he could listen to the podcast. He could listen to super it. Super easy. But he doesn't. But. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to his yet either. Does that make any difference? No. I mean, it's fair is no. fair. Fair is fair. Fair is fair. He I mean, he's not interested in that. Well, you know, he kind of is because he's the one that introduced me to Coast to Coast. Mm-hmm. But he is very much like a lot of my friends saying that he does not want to invite or mm-hmm. entertain any notion of something scary going on. Yeah. So he just assumes he just like, he's like, I'm just not going to listen. What was it that like, I feel like that's come up in conversation. I think you and I talked about something along those lines when we were right. like on our way to Atlanta. It's just like a lot of the way that we deal with life is just to pretend like it isn't happening. Exactly. Like that is so much the way that we manage like uh, yes, disturbing that, that is a coping, concepts. Yes. coping skill. Like it's fine. Yes. <laughs> if I just pretend you're not here, you can't see me. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. So. My story today, I'm going local again, and I'm really glad that I looked back through my list because I hadn't been scrolling down. <laughs> I discovered I've got like a page long note on things that I've been talking about doing on the show since we first started, and I hadn't been scrolling past the first page. And so now I'm like, oh, this one will work. Oh, I knew I need to update my story list because mm-hmm. I'm running out. I have to keep it running. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this is the story of Audrey Marie Hilly. Who is the Black Widow of Aniston? 
Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just going to start at the beginning on this. So um, she was uh, born Audrey Marie Frazier um, in Blue Mountain, Alabama, which, you know, local listeners you'll recognize is between Jacksonville and Anniston, kind of closer to Anniston. It's kind of a more rural area. Um, there were factories, a couple factories and things like that out there. Um, and both of her parents worked at a thread company called the Linen Thread Company. Um, so she was in, born in 1933. So, you know, it was like depression era times. And, you know, it wasn't like agricultural area i mean if if you're thinking alabama and cotton fields and all that kind of shit that's not where we are we're in like hills and rocky areas and people got to work in factories and people got to work their asses off and that's how things work um so um a lot of the people a lot of the kids that were in elementary school with her would generally like girls would just stop after elementary school and go work at the factory um and her parents didn't want her to do that they wanted her to be a secretary they wanted her to get a job you know because there probably weren't a whole lot of other career options for a woman um, in that time for her in that area. So they were like, okay, you're going to be a secretary. We're going to, and they spoiled the hell out of her. And even though like they both worked full time and, you know, so they had a couple of incomes, but it was hard times, you know, and it's coming, coming from hard times too. And so it was kind of hard, you know, but they kept her in good clothes. They made sure she had the things she needed. And like I said, she was spoiled like, and, um, she went in 1945, her family moved to Anniston, which, so Anniston was really, really different from living in Blue Mountain. So she was going to start seventh grade in Anniston and it was, you know, Anniston is like uppity, super uppity compared to Blue Mountain. So all the people who owned the factories that her family and friends worked at, they all lived and worked in Anniston and went to school in Anniston. And if you go to Anniston today, you will see the stark line of demarcation that still exists in Anniston from the east side of the main road to the west side of the main road. You've got like big columned houses on one side and you've got like run down shacks on the other. So, I mean, Anniston, you know, Anniston was different. Um, but she was white and, you know, so she was at the uppity school. She was at like, you know a lot of her friends had all the things and her parents kind of made it. They worked really hard to make sure that she kind of fit in. So she had all the stuff, you know, she was chosen like prettiest girl at Quintard, um, one year by the yearbook staff. Um, and then when she was, this is disturbing when she was 12, she met Frank Hilly, who was then a junior in high school and began pursuing her. And I was like, well, that's fucking gross. But, um, and of course her parents didn't want her to like, you know, get in with Frank Hilly. I'm like, why ever not? Like, why ever not 12 year old? But, um, they got married anyways in 1951. I mean, they waited a while, 1951, not when she was 12. And, um, he had gone into the Navy by then and he was on leave and he's like, no one shall take my girl. And so they got married while he was on leave. And, um, he moved to Long Beach in California with the Navy while she finished high school. Um, and he would send like paychecks back. But by the time she graduated high school, his parents still had to pay her way to get her to meet him in California because she'd get those paychecks and she would just spend them and spend them and spend them. Like she had no sense for how to deal with money. She, well, had, she was like 14. Right? And yeah, she was really, really young. Right. And, um, you know, I mean, but I mean, I guess it was she was probably like she was probably 17. Yeah. 
But still. still, I mean, you know, somebody's like basically sending you a cash cow. Money correctly, I so. know, right? And so she's like, "This is for me," you know, "This is all for me." So she's spending all this money, and this becomes like the beginning of a habit that you, you know, notice as she goes through her life. She has very fancy taste, and um, he always paid for that. But um, <clears throat> so you know, they moved around a little bit with the navy, and she got pregnant in 1952. So when she got pregnant, and he had been discharged recently, you know, he'd done his stint at the navy. So they moved back to Aniston. He started working at the foundry. She got an executive secretary job. Everything's good. We've got two incomes. She has their first child, Michael Hilly, in 52, and their second child, Carol, in 60. And um, so, you know, as executive secretary, Marie is like kind of, and I call her, every time I hear this story told, I hear Marie Hilly from locals. Her name was Audrey Marie Hilly, but she must have gone by Marie because that's how everybody, everybody calls her. Um, but she was executive secretary to a bunch of different companies because she would do a really, really good job and her bosses just loved her. But um, like her coworkers hated her because mm. she would like pit people against each other in the office and she would manipulate people. She played power games. And um, so the bosses and she, but she did a remarkably good job. She was great at what she did. So every time she quit a position, she would get a, an amazing referral mm. from her previous employer and get a, as good or a better job and tell everybody that like all the people she worked with ganged up on her and hated her and drove her out of this position. Mm -hmm. Well, what really happened was like, they hated her because she was an asshole to them the entire time right. she worked there. Right. We all know that one co-worker is, in the office. She is that lady. Right. This is who she is. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you know, they've got two incomes and she's still spending hand over foot. Like, every she's never broken out of this habit. <clears throat> so while they're both working full time, you know, Frank's mother, Carrie Hilly, was caring for the kids. And, um, you know, how many so kids? I'm sorry. How many just kids? Just two. Okay. Um, Mike was the older kid and Carol was the daughter, the younger one. And um, Marie really loved Mike as her, her firstborn. He was, I guess, he was, I think, eight years older than her. And he was the firstborn and she spoiled him and she did boys will be boys with him and basically just let him run ragged around everything. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted and he could do no wrong. Um, but um, she didn't care for Carol. I mean, she just didn't like her she wasn't like a debutante she wasn't like you know a doll baby she was a tomboy and carol and she like came to heads a lot like even in childhood apparently just argued and argued um and frank always felt bad frank her husband frank hilly carol's carol's father always felt bad because he could definitely see you know you'd think like eight years apart You've got, like, the older son and the younger daughter. You'd think the daughter would be babied, right? Well, it's female, first of all. Yeah. And certain mothers are jealous of their younger daughters and daughters, maybe not younger, but it can be a thing that happens and I females. think, And I think that may be a factor in this story because, you know, Frank would always try and, like, make up for you know, his, his wife's treatment of their daughter and take her special places and do special things. And she hated that. Right. And also females were lesser valued during this time period mm -hmm. in this generation. Yeah. So, um, you know, they just kind of go along about life, you know, every once in a while, like one of the stories, and by the way, most of my, most of my references on this come from people that I've talked to around here and from Murderpedia. So just, so just so you know that, but, um, you know, Frank, like, 
every once in a while she would exhibit these really weird behaviors like she would stay up all night and he was concerned about her like she would stay up all night and she would just shake and be afraid of everything or she would tell him that like she was having an affair with all these like she would have love letters from other men and she would say that she had them but she'd never show them to him and she was just really trying to like manipulate him it sounds like like a lot of the time right and she got to the point where the spending was so far out of like out of whack. She got a post office box in her name and started having bills routed to the post office box because she didn't want Frank to know what she was doing. And like because he was well respected in the community and everything like that, she could go to like local furniture stores. And because they know Frank, sure, we'll extend a line of credit to Marie and, um, you know, go ahead and send the bill to this post office box. And eventually, after a while, and those bills come due and nobody's getting paid, like he starts to hear through the grapevine that like your wife is running up like astronomical debt and you don't even know. Right. So, you know, he's he's starting to get really concerned about that. And and then, like, I think you would think that the straw that broke would be like in 1974. He came home sick from work and found his wife in bed with her employer. And um but, you know, he wasn't feeling well. I mean, I was like, why didn't they just divorce? But he was, like, sick, and he started to get sicker. So, like, he was sick all through 1974. Mm. He, like, he was really, really tired, and he would just constantly feel like he needed to throw up. You know, he'd go to work, and he thought, okay, well, I work at a foundry, so maybe the chemicals are impacting my health, you know. Finally, he decides he's going to go to a doctor, um, who just basically was like, you've got irritable bowel, I think, you know, they gave him like Maalox and, you know, stuff like that. And, and he continued to go and nothing was helping. And so his sister, whose name was Frida, visited him in May of that year. And he just flat out was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I've never been this sick. I am gonna die. Like, they don't know what's wrong with me. I'm gonna die. I don't, I can't fix it. And um, he also told her that, you know, his wife had been talking, you know, Marie had been talking to his, his general practitioner, Dr. Jones, and had like been giving him these injections. And so she was just like, oh, okay, well, I mean, hope, I hope it helps. And, um, but the morning after he talked to his sister, oh, Marie. The wife was giving him injections? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is what he tells his sister. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 73, you said, right? 73. Yeah. And this is 74 now. And um, so, like, the next morning at, like, 3.30 in the morning, Marie finds Frank wandering in the yard in his underwear. And she's, like, he's disoriented. She takes him to the hospital, and he's got liver failure, like, complete liver liver failure. And so Dr. Jones changes his diagnosis to please take Maalox, or from please take Maalox to you've got, like, hepatitis. Oh, my God. And uh, it's too late for you. And so he died on May 25th, like, three days after he told his sister that he was feeling like he was going to die. Um. So his autopsy report stated natural causes. They went with the infectious hepatitis. Um, and because, you know, it was natural causes, Marie collects a life insurance policy from the foundry. Um, and with it, you know, she she doesn't like save for the future. At this point, her son is, is attending Atlanta Christian College and he's married. She saves no money to help them or, you know, their future children or anything like that, or her daughter's right. way through college, she buys herself a car, she buys her daughter a car, she buys her daughter a stereo and furniture, and she buys Mike and his wife Terry, like, appliances for their house. So she just goes and blows the entire life insurance check. Wow. Um, so, um, meanwhile, um, Marie's mother, Lucille, has been diagnosed with cancer. And so after Frank dies, she brings Lucille to come and live in their house so that she can take care of her. 
And she also asks Mike and Terry, her son and his wife, if they want to come and live with her too, because he had, um, I don't, y'all probably know where Indian Oaks church is. It's like between here and, uh, Saks and, um, I'm not familiar, but it's in, it's anyway, I was like, it's in the story. We pass it. If you go Lenlock lane from here all the way to 431, it's right there on the right. There's a um, golf course also Indian Oaks, but, um, I might be talking out my ass and I expect all the corrections to start pouring in, but there's an Indian Oaks golf course right there. So it's something anyways, he had a position at a local church. He didn't have a place around here to stay. So, so, you know, his mom's like, come stay with us until you get settled in, you know, all this stuff. So they decided to move in too. So now it's Marie and her daughter, Carol, who is still in high school at this point, her son and his wife and her mother who has cancer all living in the same house. And Mike and Terry are like, immediately regretting that they've moved in with mom Mm -hmm. because carol and marie still constantly fight like and marie is so obsessed with her son that she's she's all like you why aren't you spending time with me you have to spend time with me what can we do this together and he's like i've got shit to do and she's obsessive about him Mm -hmm. and then um you know terry started falling sick all the time with stomach trouble and so like there's all this stress in their house um, during the time that they lived with Marie, Terry was in the hospital four times and she miscarried once too. And, um, so, I mean, everybody was like super tense. He and Terry finally decide we're going to move out. We found an apartment the night before they moved Marie's house where they had been living with Marie caught fire. And so, you know, everybody who had been living in that house now moves in to this teeny tiny apartment that Mike oh, and Terry just rented shit. together because they have to repair the house that caught fire. Oh my God. Bless and his then poor wife's I, heart. Oh my God, I know. And then and then when the time came and they fixed up the house and they had to move back home, the apartment next door to Mike and Terry's apartment oh, caught fire. Nightmare. And so the couple could no longer live in their apartment that they had just had everybody in. They had to move back in with Marie. Oh. So, like, they finally, after all this, it just took them forever. They finally began getting away, and they moved away from Marie after forever. What were they doing? Using spectators or something? What? That is a serious question. (laughs) Um, That's a lot of fires for one house. That's a lot of fires for one family. So, um, you know, Lucille, who was Marie's uh, mother who'd been living there, who had cancer, she died in 77. And... um, And so now it's just Marie and Carol in the house and Mike and Terry have their own place. And Aniston Police Department starts hearing constant reports from the Hilly house. Right. So she's talking about petty thefts, like people are just coming in, just taking random little things from her house. She reports gas leaks. She finds a small fire in her closet that she doesn't know who could have set it. Her neighbor finds a small fire in her closet and she doesn't know who could have set it either. And like she's both of her and her neighbor both I mean, start reporting people. I, I know, mean, like really, and they're both reporting these harassing phone calls, like that they're getting. So that the police department's constantly over at Marie's house. Um, meanwhile, she's buying up insurance policies, mm-hmm. and um, she had fire insurance, she had cancer coverage, she had life insurance on herself, on Carol, and on Mike. Um, and uh, so let's see. Marie and Carol ended up having to move out of their house, I think purportedly because she was saying there were all these crime problems in the neighborhood that she's living in, you know, the fires, the thefts, the calls. So they move in with Frank's mother, the late Frank's mother, Carol, Carrie Hilly. Um, 
she starts experiencing small fires, cut phone lines, and nausea and vomiting. Oh, my God. Um, and then Carol starts getting sick. So in 79, she's 19. She's a freshman at JSU. And this is one of my, one of my first, like, you know, Courtney called the, she, when we first said we were doing a podcast about like local crime stories, we got together with my yoga group and all of us were like, they, these women were just spouting out all these things that we could talk about. And Marie Healy was one of them. And one of my friends, a dear friend who uh, goes to yoga with us and who worked at JSU forever, Steve, had Carol Healy in one of his English classes oh, wow. in the seventies. And um, it was probably right around now that he like, you know, he was he was new as a teacher at that point. And, um, you know, she would come to class and then she would miss and then he'd heard that she'd been in the hospital and she would come to class and he said she would come in and she would just look so bad. She would be pale and frail and she lost all this weight. And he was really, really concerned because you could just tell from you could watch her waste. Right. You know, just waste away over that semester. Um, and so, you know, she, she got to where she was having faint, she was fainting at church, you know, she's at the hospital again and again and again. And over the summer she gets weaker and weaker. And, um, you know, Marie is, you know, of course the ever dedicated mom is like caring for her and keeping her safe and giving her medications Mm. and taking her to doctors. It reminds me of sharp Sharp objects. objects. That's all I could think of. I was like, did they read this particular story to put together that plot? Because we have talked about how, like, it's weird. Like, the the setting of that. If you haven't watched Sharp Objects on HBO, finish this podcast and then go watch it. Because it's it's really, really good. It is really good. It is binge-worthy. Also, I think we might have just spoiled it for you. Oh. (laughs) To be fair. Sorry. But um, it's great. It's great anyways. It doesn't even matter. Like, yeah. But um, so, you know, she takes her to all these doctors. Nobody knows what's wrong with her. And she's getting at this point, like, muscle weakness. She can't feel her feet. You know, she's got, like, foot drops. She can't, like, her nerves are all messed up in her lower extremities. And, um, you know, in August, Carol goes to RMC for the fourth time in, what, like, four months, I think. And the, I was like, fuck you, RMC. The doctor says she might be psychosomatic and has her admitted to a psychiatric ward in Birmingham. Oh, my God. But, you know, to be fair, you know, her caretaker at this point is probably having more conversations with the doctor than she is. Oh, yes. And so chances Beating are that was him. a lead conversation. And she man- she is has a history of being highly manipulative. Extremely manipulative. Um, and this just gets weirder. I mean, it just it just gets weirder. So, um, you know, Marie has continued to spend like crazy. And this whole time, Carol's ill. You know, Carol actually still trying to be independent from her mom went like even when she was this sick went and got herself an apartment and tried to move out. And Marie's like, I'm going to help you and do all these things. And so she writes bad checks for all this furniture. And she ends up like getting arrested and put on bail for writing bad checks at this point, which I'm like, Oh, it's just like Judy Neely. Like you don't get caught for the actual like horrifying shit you do. But, um, and then, um, it was just kind of a happenstance that a friend of Carol's from church while, while Carol is at the hospital, Um, is kind of going back through in her head like you know she's remembering that she had been at carol's apartment one day and um and carol told her you know marie had been giving her these injections that were required by the doctor and you know this friend at church thought it was kind of strange and carol had mentioned it again offhandedly and you know while she was in the hospital that that 
you know, her mom was still giving her these injections while she was in the hospital. And so this friend, God bless her, from church, decided she wasn't going to sit on this. She called Carol's Aunt Frida, who they had been living with for a while, who called her son, Mike, who, you know, um, Marie's son. Right. And Mike had already been a little bit like, I don't know that dad was actually super sick. Right. Like, he's already starting to get a little weird. There's so much shit that just happened. How could you not put two and two together? Really? Well, you know, but that's one of the weird things is like when it's in your family, it's like, well, I mean, like surely not and and you've got somebody this that's insanity, feeding right? the narrative yeah like the mother was doing oh yeah so, absolutely yeah. you know she had i mean she was right you she had to have been like on top of this story mm-hmm. like 100 percent. and um so uh mike ended up calling her doctor and saying listen my mom has been giving injections to my sister if you didn't order them that's a problem mm-hmm. and so the doctor says to marie please don't visit carol anymore right now you need to take a break Mm -hmm. and of course marie immediately since she's got power of attorney or whatever it is at this point you know she immediately takes her out of that hospital moves her to another one this is kind of an mo with these kind of stories right Right. like you just move her around Mm -hmm. and she takes her to uab in birmingham um and uh at this point she got she got arrested again for more bad checks and while she was kind of negotiating bail, the rest of her family like conspired and got together and approached this new doctor and said, we're super concerned here. Like while she could not be accessed because she was dealing with the police, they're like, you need to look into this. Right. So this doctor um, looked at Carol's fingernails and toenails because when you've got arsenic poisoning, there's this thing called Aldrich Mies lines that show up across, like, um, horizontally across your nails. They're these white horizontal lines that show mm-hmm. up across your fingernails. And they were on every single fingernail of hers. Oh. So um, he, he was pretty sure at that point that, like... She has been poisoned. She had been poisoned for an extremely long time. Oh. Um, so <clears throat> at this point, you know, the doctor tells this to Mike... Mike writes a really long letter to the Calhoun County coroner and says, uh, my dad might have been poisoned. My mother is super mentally ill. Is there any way that we can get an order for exhumation and a test on, on why my dad died? Um, and so they, um, you know, they, they reported it to police. Um, they exhumed Frank's body. They found, in toxicology reports that arsenic was present at many times the normal level. Um, they said he couldn't tell if it was the cause of death, but with arsenic poisoning, like arsenic poisoning over a long period of time can actually cause cancer. It can cause liver failure. It can cause like, it's not necessarily on its own, the cause of death, Mm -hmm. but it contributes and like drives a number of other causes of death. Um, so, you know, Aunt Frida goes and searches the house while the police are, you know, dealing with this whole thing with Frank. She searches the house where Marie and Carol had lived and finds a pill bottle half full of liquid. She finds rat poison. Mm. Um, The tests prove that the bottle is arsenic. They also had a pill bottle that was in Marie's purse when she was arrested that then they, luckily all this stuff happened at the same time. And so they were able to confiscate that and tested it. And there was arsenic in that bottle. This was in 79. Still 79. Um, So, um, after they exhumed Frank's body, they exhumed, uh, Lucille's body, Mm -hmm. Marie's mother who had died of cancer, of cancer. And the arsenic in her tissues ranged from four to 10 times the normal level. Dang. Um, And she got insurance money from each. And she got insurance money from everybody that died. Right. So like when they set bail for Marie, you know, she's in, you know, Mm -hmm. she's in, (laughs) 
they set bail, but the bail was like really low. And so a bunch of people who were friends with her, because she's a very charming right. individual and yes. has a large friend group, um, put together the money to get her out on bail in November of 79. And her attorney took her to stay at a motel. And of course, she jumped. Right. You know, she left a note that made it look like she had been like, you know, she was trying to make it look like somebody had like kidnapped her and taken her what away. Fuck, but it was, How many was, things can happen to one person in one lifetime? I mean, I did. It looks like there was just zero, like nobody actually thought she had been kidnapped. Right. Um, and uh, so the day that that she skipped bail, Carrie Hilly, Frank's mother, who had been taking care of them also, died of cancer in oh, Aniston. Shit. Tests done on strand of her hair indicated elevated arsenic levels so now maria suspected of poisoning four people um but they had no idea where she was uh-huh. like her trail was one it was absolutely cold they had no clue where she had gone so um anyway the final toxicology reports like the official ones came back from frank and she was indicted in absentia in january 1980 for murdering her husband and um i think also at that point she was probably for attempted murder of her daughter um but, you know, she's gone. They don't know where she is. Right. So later on, it comes to light. Marie Hilly ends up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, meets a guy named John. Um, she has an alias, though, at this point. So she's changed everything about herself. She looks completely different. And they called her a chameleon because she really could take on an entirely different personality. Wow. And, it, you know, I mean, if you look back kind of at the way that her life ran, like she'd kind of always been doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, she always wanted to be the person that fit into these different groups. And so, like, she could completely just switch everything Highly around. Highly intelligent. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And super fucked up. Yeah. Like, so... um she she went by the name Lindsay Robbie Hannon, um, and I think went by Robbie, I think. Um, and she told this guy, John, that she met in, in Fort Lauderdale that she was 33 years old, um, or she was 35 years old. He was 33. And she was from Texas, and she said that both of her children had died in a car accident. She had a tragic life, horrible, tragic life. Mm-hmm. Sympathy. Yeah. And, I mean, he was recently divorced mm-hmm. and kind of a shy personality and just, like, really wanted somebody to, like, love on him. And so she picked the right target. Like, she got right. the mark. She ran. You know, she got yeah. the mark she needed. Um, so by March, they've moved in together. And, you know, she uses a fake resume to be a secretary or, you know, she's – She's great at her job. You know, she's a super good secretary um, in West Palm Beach. And then um, they moved back to New Hampshire together, um, which is where I guess John was from. And um, she started a a new job there where she kind of got in with her coworkers who all thought she was sort of fascinating because she's got, you know, she's telling the story about her children dying and life in a wealthy family in Texas. And she's got this inheritance she's eventually going to have. So, like, she's she's very interesting to everybody you know and she's charmed them all and she is starts to talk about how ill she is that she's frail and that she has headaches and that you know eventually it comes out she's telling her coworkers, well i'm dying of a blood disease and you know i have to constantly go to texas and to other places to get specialty treatment for this disease that nobody seems to be able to treat and then she starts to talk about a sister in texas who a twin sister named terry martin and she'll like go into her office during the day and tell everybody that she's talking to terry on the phone and she'll be there for like an hour talking about like you know where am i gonna st- am i can i stay with you next time i go to my appointments for all this kind of stuff so she's like 
This is a very deep wow. fiction she's creating Full on here. production. I right? mean, it's it's really, really bizarre. Um, and so, you know, she said, okay, I'm going to go. She's telling her coworkers and John, I'm going to go to Texas to get this. This is the final chance that I have at treatment for this thing. And I'm going to go stay with my sister. And John has to stay here because I could be here for weeks. So she left. She goes to Texas. And she actually travels around a little bit. She leaves in September 82, goes to Texas. Then she, um, 1982, and um, she assumes the role of Terry Martin, her own fake twin sister. Oh, damn. And then in November 10th, on November 10th, she calls her own husband, John, because they had gotten married over this time. She calls John to tell him that his wife, Robbie, has died in Texas and that he can't have her body because she was donated to medical science and there won't be a ceremony. And this is Terry. I'm going to come back and like, we're going to grieve together. So Terry moves to New Hampshire. Oh my God. (laughs) With John. Um, She's bleached her hair. And you know, John actually says when they, um, when they, when this whole thing came to light, John said he had no idea that it wasn't her. Like he said, her demeanor was different. She held herself differently. Her hair was different. And you know, holy fuck! It sounds he like said he didn't know it was she her. needs to be like, oh like God. examined and like I like I wanted I I searched like, and searched. I was like, are there psychological like are it? What is her profile like? Right. What, what like, are the people records? need to be studying? Seriously, her. she sounds like that's. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, who the hell does this? Amazing, you know, but crazy like bad crazy. Yes, amazing. exactly. And so like now she is her own twin sister. It is. It absolutely is. And yeah, why so, don't we seem like a made-for-TV show? About well, okay, this? now listen. There All is right. a movie, and you know who's in it? Who? Angela from uh, who's, the boss? who's the Boss? Oh Judith my God! Stars as Audrey Hilly. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm totally watching that yes, this week. Yes, me too. <clears throat> because it's got Angela from Who's the Boss. But, um, so anyway, like, so Terry moves in with John, right? And at this point it's Marie Hilly as Terry, her own twin sister, (laughs) moves in with John and she even goes, okay, so they go together to the local paper to put an obituary Mm -hmm. for Robbie who has not actually died and never really existed. Right. And, um, the, and then they have the gall to go into the office where she used to work to tell her coworkers that she has died. And some of them, like, actually were like, they bought it. And then others were like, this is a giant pile of shit. Oh, well, I'm like, glad somebody this like. This is impossible. Right. And somebody um, found, figured that out. And it's funny because it said, then the speculation began. Yes. And, like, so, you know. <laughs> She moves in with John again. They're living together. And this this group of people at this office. And all I picture is like these like little like gossipy. It's like mm-hmm. the good side of the gossipy office group. Mm-hmm. Who's just like, I just can't stop talking about this Terry girl. Like this mm-hmm. can't possibly be right. And so they become amateur so sleuths. Yes. And they take this obituary that they placed in the local paper. Yes. And start going through it line by line. And they start researching and making phone calls. Because this is the 80s. So you can't just get on Google and find out that like. Right. The college she graduated from never existed. Right. So they're making phone calls and writing letters, and Good they discover them. that the places that are listed, like the the church that she went to in the obituary, and the um, the uh, 
what what do you call the place where they take you when you die? The mortuary internment place. Yeah, I mean they um yeah the mortuary they um they don't exist either, and um so they report this to their manager who reports it to police, and um <clears throat> so uh detectives go and apprehend her thinking that she is somebody else but not thinking that she's marie hilly they have a couple of other fugitives in the area that they think may have been changing identities Mm -hmm. and so they get they get her and think like okay this must be this other chick and um when they when they pick her up and they ask her what her name was she says my name is audrey marie hilly wanted in alabama on bad check charges and um, she, I think, at this point may or may not have realized that she was also wanted for murder and attempted murder. Um, so uh, they took her back to face uh, to face charges back in Alabama. Who presided over the trial? Judge Sam Monk. Uh, I don't know. Sam Monk, actually, we we know he's the university's uh, lead counsel. Oh, we know this guy. Wow. As Brandon, Brandon, Brandon used to see him when he worked in the main office at the university oh, okay. at Jacksonville State University. And he always said, he's just a good old country lawyer. Um, sure. Sam Monk presided over her trial. And um, it, it was oddly more of a trial than you would expect. Like given the number of things that like the absolute bizarro shit that's involved in this, like it wasn't just a cut and dried case. Like they tried to say that Carol was, you know, like well, first oh, thing loony. Like, yeah. Insane. Oh yeah. I mean, and they, they played everything they could against Carol. Apparently she had had relation, like same sex relationships and they played that against her. They played against her. The fact that she had once smoked pot. I mean, it was like everything mm-hmm. they could. Satanic and, you know, cult. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> so they, uh, was she a witch? It, luckily, like when Frank died, I think it was when Frank died. Um, police had interviewed her at one point before and she had under like really really intense questioning admitted that she had given injections to him while he was in the hospital and that ended up killing her and the other thing that mike had written like had written so Mm -hmm. they had it in record Mm -hmm. a letter to the coroner saying i think my mom's crazy please exhume my dad i think she killed him Mm -hmm. so even though he had actually at this point like you know he didn't want to make his his mom go to jail or, right. or face the death penalty, which may have been on the table. So he was holding all that stuff back, mm-hmm. but he couldn't because it was in writing. Right. So they used it and they did, they did get her. She ended up, um, I, I mean, the trial itself was a, a lot, but the jury took like three hours. Oh, and I'm sure. she, so she what time, I mean, what period are we talking about? What year? It's, uh, 83. Okay. So she's like 50. So yeah, she's 50. Cause it was, she was born in 33. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, she was, she was guilty of murder and attempted murder. She was, um, given a life sentence for the murder and 20 years for the poisoning. I was like 20 years for trying to fucking poison your own kid. Right. For real. Um, but, and she still said she was innocent. Like she never said she was. Well, she guilty. was probably playing a different personality, right? So she was put in Tutwiler. We all know Tutwiler. We know now Tutwiler because right? we've talked about Viola and all these mm-hmm. other, you know, all these other people end up, you know, Neely. She ended up in Tutwiler, right? Women's prison in Wetumpka. Um, it was she was originally classified as medium security, and then they reclassified her as minimum security because she's fucking smart manipulative. Because she's bitch. fucking manipulative. Yes. In 1985, they reclassified her as minimum, even though she was constantly talking about other inmates about her plan for escaping the prison like i mean like really and so they gave her furloughs 
And she did three, like, several-day furloughs um, without incident. Like, she would just come back when she was supposed to. And then in 1987, she got another furlough and went and met her husband, John, who had relocated to Aniston to be near her. Holy fuck. He was on board? He was on board. He did not, you know, he was with her still. Wow. Wow. Yep. Well, you know, again, manipulative. I'm sure she Can had him eating out of her hands. It's insane. You should and tell so her what she told him. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know what she told him, man. I have no idea. So he's, I mean, he was he's really still lonely. on board. Yeah, yeah it's nuts. And so, like, they got together in a hotel for the weekend. And then he comes back. You know, she says, like, I want to go put flowers on my mother's grave or something. He just lets her go. And then he comes back to the hotel later on that afternoon. And, um, you know, she's left a note saying, I can't take it. I'm going to leave. And she has jumped again. Mm. And she's left. And, you know, at this, like, the police are like, we're not going to get her. They're like, this woman had a plan when she left. Mm-hmm. She's in Canada well, by all, now. They're like, we're not going to get her. I mean, big mm-hmm. duh. This is like their fault. This is like law enforcement's fault. Oh, my God. On not, so many levels. On so like, many levels. super no- negligence. Negligence on this one, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. But, um, so, you know, they're assuming that they're not going to ever catch her. Mm-hmm. But then, oddly enough... Like, what was it, I guess, six days, I think, after she has taken off, the police get a random call from a lady who lives in a house near Blue Mountain, Alabama, where, Mm. you know, where Maria's from. And she says, a strange, delirious woman has showed up on my front porch telling this cockamamie story about how my car has broken down. And she's obviously got hypothermia. So they come and... um, by the time they even get here, she's it's Marie. She's already lost consciousness. She's convulsing. Her heart stops in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Her body temperature was 81 degrees. So she's been crawling around in the woods of Blue Mountain for six days because she oh maybe didn't have a plan or oh. maybe she had one and she got... You something know, happened dumped, right? yeah something or happened. somebody didn't buy her bullshit right? so she died before she even made it to the hospital oh, wow. so they don't know why she did that they don't know anything about like what her plan was they just know that she she went back home yep. and she died an ugly death. well it could have been like 80 degrees one day and then 35 the next day as it is alabama, alabama right so Oh wow! So that is the Holy that is the story shit. of Marie Hilly. Yeah, yeah. It was February, so yeah, it totally could have been eighty and thirty, <laughs> right? Oh my god! I've... Yeah, I had no idea there was that much involved in that story. Like, I knew wow. about the arsenic poisonings, and that's it. And then I was like, she fucking pretended to be her own fucking imaginary twin sister, sister right? <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, now now I'm gonna be in this like just fascinated by what kind of mental health signals are in here like what is the diagnosis for this woman right but yeah yes yes i definitely want to study up on like the medical condition like of somebody that manipulative yeah that is so crazy well you know they're doing you know i did the um viola hyatt Mm -hmm. murder Um, they're doing a movie. So yes, my friend Alex is doing yes, that movie. Alex yes, Alex is doing the movie, and I'm really excited about that. It's like, okay, next project, Alex, is this lady yeah. here, Hiller, Hilly? Hilly, yep, Marie wow. Hilly. Well, and um, we can share a, a link to his Instagram oh, or absolutely. The, the movie's Instagram from, from the site. That's probably a good idea we yeah. can do. Um, absolutely. Shout out. So there we go. Yes. 
Another week. Another week. Another murder. Another murder. Another strange UFO sighting. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Great drink. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow Absolutely. us on all the things. And all the things. We'll have it posted on all the things. All right, y'all. Bye. Bye. Survival of that